Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. Here on Thursdays at the Commonwealth Club, we tape for Progressive Voices, the Michelle Miao Show, with my co-host, John Zipper, who hosts his own talk show. Uh, it's week-to-week political roundtable talk, and that happens here at the Commonwealth Club. He's also a boss here, my boss. <laughs> no. <laughs> my colleague. Uh, we have a great guest today. I'm, I'm so thrilled and excited for her for a lot of reasons. And, um, you know, one, as an everyday Bay Area person, just to see someone like her run for political office and be open and humble and articulate about running for the very first time and embracing the identity part of politics, it did give me this courage and this 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 feeling to be inspired that I too one day could do more than what I do. So let's welcome and congratulate Janice Lee, who's just been elected to the BART board and representing District Eight. Janice, welcome to the show. Hi, Michelle, John, Janice. All right, so it is tradition, and it just warms us up like a nice cup of tea, um, especially when you're not feeling well, which lots of people are not feeling well. But share with us a coming out story. It doesn't have to be the one and only the first time, um, but any coming out. Now, does it have to be Janice's, or could she, like, Harvey Firestein's? She... (laughs) John, I was going to just, you know, tell a variety of stories. Um, it's it's funny because uh, my coming out story is not that interesting. And I think that it is very millennial to no longer have to have this whole day and you bake a cake or you send a letter. Like, I do think it's very millennial where it's like this is your identity is who you are and is just part of it. And as it comes up, it does. Um, but I have been... I guess, openly queer. I came out pretty late uh, with all that said in my early 20s, post-college. Um, I think it was just a slow recogni- recognition um, of who I was um, and who I am. Uh, so I identify as queer. And uh, what was really funny is that despite being very openly queer, whenever you know int- when it came up or when I introduced myself, it was never a roadblock for me to say, yes, I am a queer Asian woman. Mm-hmm. Um, what was really, really fascinating to me is that I, when I ran for office, um, because one of my big supporters was, is Bevan Dufty, was Bevan Dufty during the race, and he is obviously a longtime leader in the LGBTQ community here locally um, and even beyond. And so he was so thrilled to have a queer woman running to serve alongside him on the BART board that he set it up that Bayer reporter would actually be doing the embargoed piece to announce my uh, the other coming out as a candidate. Um, so obviously, because it was BAR, that shaped in some ways how I was seeing, seen as a candidate. And uh, it was so fascinating because suddenly I was like really coming out. And I was like, but I've been out. But they're like, no, but this is you now. I was like, but it's all, no, you know, Uh, I thought that was really interesting. And it always came up very regularly um, that I was, you know, a transportation advocate. I was someone who cared a lot about transit and also, yes, queer woman of color and was something that I kept having to sort of come out, whether it was an endorsement meeting or a, or a community event or whatever it was. Um, And this was really running for office. The first time I really, um, was so publicly seen as being queer. Um, and it's had some really fascinating impacts on my life. Um, I also found it 
very, very liberating to what I would call externalize my queerness in this very, very public way, which I never thought that this was going to be a place I'd be in. So um, that that's about it. Um, everyone was chill with it. Like that's what I was going to ask. I mean, during the, <laughs> during those all these meetings, you would go and, and it would have to be mentioned or something. Yeah. No pushback or no. No, and I think what's interesting is that I don't know if there was ever one moment I like came out to my mother or anything, um, but um, my w- family history is interesting here. My mother, uh, I was born in Hong Kong, and I have a very, very large extended family of which I do not know very much at all. I've not been back to Hong Kong since I was um, about, like 10 years old or so, but my mother does go back, and when she was growing up, she had gosh, like six brothers and sisters. And the sibling that she was closest to was uh, the immediately youngest brother who he's gay. He's my, he's my uncle, David. He's my gay uncle. Um, And something that my mom told me a little bit later was that um, he was, she was the first person he told in the family. Um, And that was a really big deal. And this was, you know, many decades ago. And my mom's been really supportive. I've been telling a lot of campaign stories um, via Instagram, via Facebook, on my social media. And my mom, like, always is super supportive. She's like, you go, girl. You be whoever you want to be. So I think it's, like, really awesome for actually my friends to see that (laughs) more than it is for me. Um, when she was in town leading up to elections, she came to the Castro with me when I did some uh, street side outreach, you know, for election day um, with the Harvey Milk LGBTQ Democratic Club. Um, she walked around Castro, saw a naked man. Um, I prepared her for it, but she's really been there with me, um, which I know I'm very, very fortunate and lucky about. But I think that goes back to the history and the close relationship she has with her younger brother. Speaking of media and the Bayer reporter, you know, doing this big story and then it becoming like a big part of your campaign, the the identity part, Asian, queer, woman. And in fact, uh, I, I, I was I couldn't believe it, but I think and correct me if I'm wrong, but you are the you're the first queer woman to hold the BART uh board seat in 10 years in San Francisco. Is that right? Oh, gosh. Well, this is something that Bevins mentioned a lot, that I'm the first uh, queer woman of color in elected office in 10 years. Um, I do want to give a hearty shout out to Chanel Williams, um, who's a queer black woman on the City College Board of Trustees. So uh, I I don't want to get too into the weeds of some of these first ever. um, For my seat, I know I'm the first woman to ever serve in the BART seat I am serving in, Wow, um, which is crazy. Uh, the seat has been elected by voters since 1975, so I'm the first woman to serve in that seat, which represents the west side of San Francisco. Um, I'm the second or maybe third Asian person ever, but certainly the first Asian woman to serve in the seat. Um, yeah, so there's still a lot of first to be broken in 2019. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, to, to finish what I was going to ask... Um, so the English media were very, very focused on that. But I know that there were a lot of uh, Chinese newspapers who did write articles about you. I can't read Chinese, so I have no idea what they were saying or how they were identifying you. But was it the same? Did they write, you know, queer Asian woman Chinese? So I can't read Chinese, but my mom can. I always sent her all the articles. I would have my uh, folks help translate for me. Um, I speak Passwell Cantonese. 
Um, you're right. I did focus a lot on Chinese media. I'll say from a campaign standpoint, <clears throat> my electorate is predominantly Chinese. It includes Chinatown. I live in the Outer Sunset. The district includes the Richmond Outer Sunset, includes um, Little Hollywood down the southeast part of the city. It's a very weird district. And I knew that when it comes to public transportation and decisions within city and regional government, a lot of times the Chinese community is left out of the table. They're forgotten. Even though the Chinese community is one of the most transit-dependent populations, you ride the L or the 8 or the 9 any day of the week, um, and you'll see it's packed with Chinese seniors going to and from Chinatown. Um, so I focus a lot on Chinese media. Um, and you're right. The things that they focused on were very different. They were much more interested in my story, in my family. Um, my mother grew up in you know, extreme poverty in Hong Kong, and they were very interested in sort of my journey to be in San Francisco and how I got to this point. They were both uninterested in my queerness, and it was something that I certainly intentionally muted. And it's something that I'm coming to terms with. Um, because it's, because it's still scary. Mm -hmm. It's still scary of how you're judged. And I think we all know now the world of secretive WeChats. And I was told by people that in the WeChats, I was, I've been called like a bad Chinese or bad Asian. And that, that's still scary to come from, you know, this community I'm identifying with. Mm. You were called that because you're queer or they don't like the stances it, you've taken? Both. Really? All of the above, I, you know, some version of that. Well, let's talk about BART <laughs> yeah. for those listening um, uh, from other parts of the country. BART is the Bay Area Rapid Transit system here in the, in the Bay Area, and many commuters depend on BART to get to and from work, uh, school. And so, you know, big part of your campaign points were to make BART more affordable and that's a given in terms of the programs that we need for seniors, um, you know, low income, uh, disabled, and so on. I, I want to start with your thoughts on affordability for the working class because San Francisco and it, the general area has become so expensive to mm -hmm. live, to work. <clears throat> now people moving further and further away from San Francisco and needing to depend on BART to commute. I mean, the fares aren't getting, you know, cheaper. Um, in fact, no. they're climbing up. And so how do we make it affordable for the working class? Absolutely. Um, so when it comes to affordability, I think there's a few pieces of that. For me, there's everything related to fares. So it's not just how do you help it, like help folks not have to pay so much when it comes to transportation. Transportation after housing is actually the number two largest um, housing cost. Um, so it's really significant when you, you know, I hear of folks who have to pay, you know, 20 bucks a day because they're parking somewhere, they need to take bars and then they take Muni. It, it can really, really add up. Um, so there's certainly fair affordability, but then there's also a lot of fair programs that can help folks who are either low income or it's just, you know, having real regional fair policy so that you're not paying multiple trips if you have to transfer from Golden Gate Transit to BART or Muni to BART, you're getting hit every single time. Um, and there isn't really a lot of regional fair coordination work happening. And so it's thinking about fares really holistically, along with like the fare that you pay when you clip in to BART and clip out of BART. Um, and then the other piece of affordability that I'm 
really pushing for it, and there's a lot of vehicles for the, all of these ideas right now, um, policy-wise, is what can BART do to play its role as a regional player to advance affordability more broadly, such as building more affordable housing? And that's really huge for me. I um, had this like BART board workshop last week, and we were talking about affordable housing and how BART can play its role there. And I joke that um, as someone who lives in uh, an in-law unit in the Outer Sunset, one of the stupidest things I did was to run for office and promise that I could be able to afford living in San Francisco and living in my district for four years. Mm. As a young person who is a tenant who has no pathway to ever owning a home in this city, I do nonprofit work. I've done that for 10 years. Um, I have no pathway to ever owning a home. And now I've made this commitment to the people of San Francisco to serve in this office for four years, this length of this term. As a 31-year-old trying to <laughs> look four years ahead and say, I'm going to be here and be able to afford to live in San Francisco is uh, a daunting challenge to myself. Um, so I personally very much feel the affordability fight. So I think BART has already, you know, done a lot more to step up. There was a state bill that was passed and signed by the governor last year that um, looks at BART's land use and um, is able to advance more progressive policies to be able to develop more affordable housing on their land um, rather than the parking that's there. Sorry. Um, and then when it comes to fair affordability, uh, right now there is a regional coordination to pilot a means-based fair program across a few um, transit agencies. I really think that where I would love to see BART go is where Muni is. Um, Muni has a very, very easy system for folks to sign up for, whether you're a student, so there's free Muni for youth, um, whether you're a senior or a person with disability, they're very expansive programs. And you can see how much that adds to, especially for, say, a high school student who wants to pick up a job after work to support their family or wants to go to after school program or, you know, do leadership development. Um, there's so many opportunities here in San Francisco. But the key to, a to be able to access that is the physical transportation that gets you from point A to point B. And so I would love to see BART, you know, f certainly participate in this means-based fare program, but to continue pushing for higher rates of inclusion with those affordable fare programs. Um, right now, the discount is only 20% is what's being proposed, which is really not good enough um, versus, say, the free muni programs. So, you know, we'll get there and I, you know, will be a strong voice on the uh, BART board to push for that. I just saw some European country, I want to say it's the Netherlands, just made all public transportation uh, free. Is that right? Yeah. I, and is anyone talking about that here? Oh my gosh, I will love that. Um, I know that that's controversial, but I'm just going to say it. I think public transit is a public good. Do we have to subsidize it? Absolutely. Um, I don't think that public transit should be forced to only survive by competing with other modes, uh, private modes, because I don't think that BART will ever win out over Uber and Lyft. But you look at those other modes and you see that Chariot is going to close up their operations um, at the end of February, March or thereabouts. So it's not like other private transit companies are, you know, f necessarily flourishing. Uh, couldn't tell you about Uber and Lyfts, you know what their finances look like. But um, I really think that public transit is a public good. When you look at our sidewalks, when you look at our streets, when you look at our parks, um, I hope that we never get into the conversation of how does Golden Gate Park 
compete with some private, you know, space, private recreation space, or that we would have to pay tolls to use Golden Gate Park. You would never conceive of that. Um, And I really hope that we can view as a community really invest as a city really invest in transit because it is truly the lifeblood of our cities, our regions. I think to love a city is also to love transit. Miko, you know, it's it's interesting. A lot of people these days have a feeling and a, an emotion about BART <laughs> um, uh, like I've never seen before. And uh, how, I mean, people are even posting daily BART stories or they call them the BART Chronicles. And uh, what I mean by that is people's experiences, are they're being more vocal about it now. Mm-hmm. Some good, some bad, most bad. Um, so this conversation about safety mm-hmm. uh, on, on BART, and I, I'm conflicted as a progressive who doesn't think that, you know, enforcement always has to look like you've got to turn to uh, the authorities or law mm-hmm. enforcement, right, to, to do that type of work. And so when you're, you've, you, you, we're dealing with um, what I call symptoms of poverty and the, the, the drug abuse, the mental illness, homelessness, you see that obviously in public transportation. So this big question, and it's a hard one. And Mm -hmm. I know we've had lengthy conversations around it, but how do we, how do we deal with it? People are saying we need more police presence in BART stations. People say, no, that's not what we need. But you said something in a couple articles that I thought were very amazing and radical and, and true to our progressive nature. Absolutely. And maybe I'll first say that the things that I can say as a candidate while I was campaigning is different than what it means to represent people. And I, I would say that um, I've, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of people who really inspire me during, the, during my time here in San Francisco, just in my life. And certainly when you're campaigning, you meet one-on-one with a lot of people. I think one of the conversations that sticks out the most to me was when I met with assessor recorder Carmen Chu. She won her re-election. And really this question of integrity and who you serve. So while I was campaigning, let's be honest, I was winning and whipping those votes. I want to vote so I could be in this office and make the change I want to see. Now that I'm in this office, I have to represent my entire constituency, which is close to 400,000 people. It's larger than any of the supervisor districts is larger than some, you know, state assembly districts. I'm sure, you know, look at other jurisdictions. Um, and I need to serve all 380,000, one of my constituents, um, not just the people who support me and not just the people who vote for me. So what that means when it comes to enforcement, um, I have had a history of bad experiences with law enforcement. Um, as a person of color and someone who worked uh, in my previous life, I in, back in Buffalo, New York, I worked particularly with black teens, a lot of refugee teens, and generally teens of color. And I saw directly the, the impact that biased law enforcement had had. Um, and it was, and a lot of my interactions with law enforcement, um, I did not walk away with a huge confidence in our criminal justice and law enforcement system. That is my own perspective, though. And so as I am now in this office and having to deal with fare evasion, I am looking at the absolutely plummeting customer satisfaction numbers at BART. It is at the lowest it's ever been. I think it's in the mid-50s right now. We were presented with those statistics last week. And 
when you know you look at the customer satisfaction survey and see that fare evasion is one of the biggest concerns, safety is one of the biggest concerns. And when I was campaigning and talking to people, this is absolutely something that came up. Um, where do you go, right? It's really tough. Um, so for me, there are a couple of initiatives that I want to move forward that have uh, support from some of my colleagues and that we've been discussing at the BART board level publicly as well. One is Fairgate replacement. I think just knowing that BART really cares about its customers and the issues of safety and fare evasion, which I think are two separate issues, but are often conflated, um, I think to see that BART really cares about who's entering its system and cares about its paying passengers is really critical. So I'm in strong support of trying to move forward quickly with Fairgate replacement that, you know, isn't just swinging gates or, you know, those um, pneumatic gates that you can sort of step over, uh, but something that really takes the security of the system more seriously. Um, that's a big initiative that there is uh, a lot of support for at the board right now and among BART management. The other thing is that I would love to see not law enforcement have a presence at the stations. I've heard particularly as, as a, you know, as a woman myself who's often taking BART and Muni at all hours, well, can't take it all hours until the <laughs> latest trains possible. Um, I don't feel safe at night sometimes because it's so it's so quiet at the stations. You know, certainly you've got your morning, your evening, evening commute rushes. But when you're taking BART at like 10 p.m., 11 p.m., going to and from Oakland, the stations can feel very empty. You don't see a lot of staff. Uh, a lot of times uh, there are fewer station agents, so you'll see the station agent boots are actually empty. Um, so I would love to find more ways to actually staff up at the stations um, and also have, you know, more of ambassador programs. Something I was very supportive of, I would will have to still see, you know, what opportunities there are, is to actually create a social worker unit at BART. It's something that the SF Public Library System did. It was very... Um, very ambitious. It was very, um, it was, it was uh, very creative, but a lot of people were very apprehensive about whether it would work with the SF public library system. It has been widely lauded as something that really brings resources for librarians who are not social workers. You know, librarians don't know how to deal with, um, you know, when there's drug abuse or there's a mental health crisis happening at their libraries which does happen a lot. You go to a main library, you'll see it. Um, they don't have, libraries are not well-equipped. They don't have those resources. And to have a team of social workers there to be able to assist folks um, relieves a lot of the pressure off of the librarians themselves. This has been widely successful. And I would love to see BART really re rethink the way that they engage with their passengers and be creative um, about bringing the resources that folks who are living, sleeping, um, using drugs at their station, really be able to transition them out into the services that they need. I uh, once was, maybe a year or so ago, was riding up the escalator at the uh, Glen Park Park Station, and a man, probably like four feet above me on the escalator, started urinating along the side of the, so he went up, I went and I told the station, person there just so you might want to have someone clean that up yeah and she's like yeah it's a great day someone just defecated in front of our bathroom doors um what handles that i mean is, is 
Yes. Uh, there, I mean, is the social worker going to come over and the, the guy is going to be gone by the time? Yeah, absolutely. So two immediate solutions um, that are proven um, that are already underway. So first is the elevator attendant program, which was began piloting April of last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so at gosh, I want to say it's Civic and Powell stations. The elevators have someone who is Bart, uh, is actually through Hunter's Point family. It's a, it's a partnership Bart has with that uh, nonprofit organization to have folks actually sitting in the elevators um, and making sure that whatever happens in the elevators is you know safe, that those spaces are welcome. Is we're talking particularly about you know seniors and people with disabilities who have to use right, those elevators. Right. I, I feel like for someone who's able-bodied myself, I would not choose to use those elevators. It's really for people who really need them. The elevator attendant program has not only been wildly successful, but the stats go to show. Um, so first, it's the first time we've ever, BART has ever had actually, as far as I know, data on who's using their elevators, how many people are in wheelchairs, how many people are riding the elevators to begin with, which is great. Second thing is that the incidence of urination defecation, of vandalism has gone to zero. It wasn't like, oh, it went from a lot to, okay, it decreased a little bit. But when you physically have a person staffing those elevators, it goes to zero. Mm -hmm. And it's incredible to see those statistics. And there is strong support, once again, at the management and the BART board level to expand that program because we've seen its effectiveness. It's also a job workforce development program for Hunter's Point family, which is amazing. Um, And then the second thing is in San Francisco, BART has begun partnering with SF Public Works to increase its pit stop program. So pit stop program, uh, widely supported by then supervisor Jane Kim, is uh, run by Public Works where they have um, porta potties, like really nice porta potties brought in on, you know, on a trailer. And there is a staff person there sort of attending to those pit stops and folks you know, who need to use them can. And so we're, that program was extended to, there's, uh, there's locations at 16th Mission, BART Station, um, other BART stations as well, so that there are bathrooms to use. But aren't there already bathrooms in those stations? So they've been closed down since 9-11 um, because of known supposed security concerns. It, 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 I would love to reopen them. The Bart, I want to reopen them. Well, the bathroom at the BART station <laughs> yep. in Glen Park is, is open. And it was open that day, in fact, when this happened. My point being, having someone physically in the elevator, I totally get that. You're going to accept someone who's totally awful. Right. You're going to stop them. But someone who is... Doing something like that, even though the bathroom's right there, you know, um, short of someone being there, you know, where there's always someone who can be that sort of, I forget what you call the ambassador or or whatever. Um, I don't know what to do. But I mean, there are bathrooms that are open. Uh, I will say that this question of how do public agencies change behavior is probably, you know, a tale as old as time. And I I do think that... It's hard, right? Yeah. Because I think, as Michelle, you were saying that these are the symptoms of other things. Now, I don't want to make any judgment about what that person was or wasn't doing. Um, but what we know is that a lot of folks who are marginally housed or completely homeless at the moment are sleeping and living at BART stations, at Muni stations, because it's a warm place of refuge for folks to be. 
And I truly think BART has finally recognized that they cannot simply say, well, that's not us because we run trains all day. I think over the last year, BART has moved in the direction of acknowledging that this is a problem. And whether they want to, whether they, BART believes that they are the right agency to do something about, you know, the situation, they have to for the sake of their passengers, for the sake of the safety at their stations, and for the sake of the people in our own communities who, you know, have been abandoned by our system in a lot of ways because of our inability to build housing or because of the complete lack of social services in some ways. Um, you probably saw the reports that during this, the intense rainfall, you know, our city provided, what, 20 mats for the 4,000 people we know who are living on our streets. That is absurd, is inhumane. And we are seeing the effects, and you and me are seeing those effects at Clen Park, you know, BART station, at the downtown BART stations. Um, and so I think that BART has made huge strides in one, acknowledging the issue, and two, beginning to roll out and pilot programs immediately. Uh, whether it's pit stop program, elevator attendant program, bringing in HOT, uh, the homeless outreach teams, into the stations. Um, it's not enough, though. Mm-hmm. It's not happening quick enough. Um, I, I ride BART all the time. I ride Muni so much. I mean, I rode Muni to get here today. Um, and I, I see it. I feel it. I hear it. And BART needs to continually do more but recognize that this is in the context of this untenable, inhumane, you know, homeless crisis that we are seeing play out in our city. This is the reason why I'm so excited for for you and and to be elected. I mean, you know, these these aren't just really smart and intelligent words, um, uh, you know, for a platform for someone to speak on that you've think about these things. You're very well qualified for this position. Although, you know, you come off like humble, like it was my first time running for a political office and it was a little bit of luck or this and that, but you've really gotten the endorsements of a lot of different clubs, a lot of different communities, very diverse communities, um, our political leaders. And you're really looking at it, not just like it's a BART issue, but looking at it in ways in which you can engage other uh, departments of government to regulate and hold accountable. I mean, one of the things I liked what you said was um, criticizing even the M, uh, MT, I'm sorry, the Municipal Transportation SFMT, Commission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and talking about like not just sitting on the BART board, but finding a way to even get inside the commission yourself, mm-hmm. you know, as a leader. Um, yes. I, I want, you know, I, I think that doing something like that, working with the city, working with other local governments mm-hmm. to address the symptoms of poverty is going to really make some change at BART. Otherwise, I think BART in itself, its own department is always going to try to make it better um, without any real solutions. Yeah, yeah. Um, that That's the, the specific thing I wanted to get on, and it, I was half joking, although, Mayor Breed, if you're listening, please, I'm interested in this role, uh, is the Metropolitan Transportation Commission. It's the nine Bay Area uh, regional, it's a municipal, or, yeah, Metropolitan Planning Organization, MPO, it's a technical term, um, but it is the regional governmental agency overseeing the nine Bay Area counties um, that is supposed to be the planning agency for all land use and transportation. Now, if you look at land use and transportation, so housing and how you get around in the Bay Area, 
it is shocking to know that there is such an agency because you're like, there's a total breakdown here, right? Right. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts about how MTC is run. Um, I'm excited that there's new leadership being brought in. The new executive director was just announced, uh, Therese McMillan, coming up from LA Metro. Really look forward to working with her. Um, but the governance structure is representatives from all nine Bay Area counties. So you've got folks on Solano who understand Solano issues really well, something I don't understand, who are deciding how money should be spent, you know, even in San Francisco or what land use and zoning should look like in, you know, deep East Oakland or something. And uh, it causes some not so great pieces of regionalism. And so certainly there's a lot of things I want to use my BART director hat to do. One of them is forcefully, honestly, insert myself into these conversations and say, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to meet with me. And if you don't, I will tell everyone, hmm. you know, because I, I think that, uh, something I said a lot of times, <laughs> a lot of folks were like, especially older folks while I was campaigning, they're like, what do, what do you kids know? I'm like, I'm 31 and I'm, I can, can I swear on this? Sorry. Yeah, you can. I'm 31 and f- patient. Like, you know, I'm just not going to keep waiting um, to see this change um, because I'm directly impacted. The, the affordability issue is affecting me right now as it is so many folks. And so I think that sort of impatience makes me want to solve the issues and push forward, whether it's affordability, whether it's fair integration, regional fair policy, um, l- better land use um, immediately. Before we turn on the mic for our audience to ask questions, uh, my my last question before that portion, then J- John, you can ask your question, um, is the that that key piece, you know, for, uh, partnerships or the idea of partnering with other social service agencies, um, the affordability discussion, uh, staffing up, you know, all of this is uh, the money has to come from somewhere. As so, where's the money going to come from? Great question. Um, So the thing is that a lot of things that we want to do, it's hard to find the dollars to do them. So uh, this is a little bit more in the weeds, but for most agencies, uh, government agencies, you have a capital budget and then you have operating budget. Capital budget is like, for BART, the you know the tracks, the rails, power substations, you know the the Caldecott Tunnel, the Transbay Tube, and it's really those infrastructure things. Um, thank you to voters who overwhelmingly passed Measure RR in 2016 that brought 3.5 billion dollars in general obligation bond. That will help us get to a state of good repair so that our system is not literally on fire like you see in you know New York City, DC. So thank you voters. That's very very critical. But when we're talking about station attendance. Fair programs. That's operations money. That's you know stuff you pay workers, um, and that's much harder to find. And so it is true that we have to be creative in thinking about revenue sources, revenue mechanisms. They could be ballot measures. It could be other things. Fortunately, I've had a lot of experience working on uh, transportation funding locally here in San Francisco. I worked on Measure RR, worked on Regional Measure Three, walked those halls in Sacramento, so I knew the state legislators and put forward certain issues to them. Um, and I look forward to doing that, you know, with BART, with my BART board hat on. But um, some creative revenue sources, something I worked on last year, which hopefully will go before voters in San Francisco in November, this November, is a TNC tax. So TNCs, 
transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft. Um, they provide, I think, a pretty critical service uh, that most folks would say that they use and help increase their ability to get around the city. However, we know the costs that we're paying in terms of congestion, the traffic we see on our streets, and we want to make sure that those companies are paying their fair share. They can't just say like, oh, we provide an app, that's it. It's like, well, you are also putting an inordinate you know, impact onto our local streets. So this measure... Um, and it was authorized at the state level last year, would allow San Francisco to pursue a voter-approved measure to tax each rideshare ride that originates in San Francisco. It needs to be voter-approved, but the hope is that you can recoup somewhere between you know, $25, $30 million and put that back into affordable transit, put that back into bicycle and pedestrian projects, put that back into um, cleaning of stations or what have you. Um, but we have to be creative and we have to really think about how we capture the value and the wealth that's being created in our city so that we can have a world-class public transit system, not simply one where we hope today no one defecates in the elevator, but one where we can be truly proud of. You look at world-class cities, they have world-class transportation. I remember the first time I went to Washington, D.C., and I was blown away by their metro. Um, I have no idea if it's great now. I just, at the time it was, it's not. Okay. Well, <laughs> it's beautiful it though. Decline. Goodness. What beautiful subway stations. Okay. Moscow, uh, Moscow. Anyway, um, <laughs> two questions really. One, why did you get into politics? And two, why transportation? Meaning, were you a political nerd or were you a transportation nerd? She's Neither. Neither. <laughs> <laughs> Neither. She's a nerd. <laughs> yes, that, that's, that's true on a lot of different levels. Um, <laughs> My background is being a community organizer. I founded a youth community center in Buffalo, New York, um, alongside uh, and through this amazing organization that did community-based building, community organizing, you know, really huge game-changing campaigns that's tied to affordable housing development, serving the uh, CDC um, Community Development Corporation model that was really popular in sort of like 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. This organization I worked for, was sort of under that CDC model. I founded this youth community center. So I was a very hit the streets, knock the doors, develop youth, develop leaders, build capacity in the community to really have community ownership over those communities. Um, then uh, I, for a variety of reasons, decided to move to San Francisco. Actually, I knew more that I was going to move out of Buffalo. Moved to San Francisco, uh, and before I got here, made sure I had a job, and it was to be a community organizer at the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization founded in 1971 that has today over 10,000 active annual dues-paying members, which makes it one of the largest membership organizations in San Francisco. Um, and its mission is to promote the bicycle for everyday transportation. Elegant, simple, um, but we've been around for a long time. It's a very political organization. We make political endorsements. Um, so it was really the Bike Coalition that sort of shoved all these things together. Uh, and after two years of being community organizer, I was promoted to be advocacy director, a position I still hold. So I oversee all of the advocacy, policy, campaigning, legislative, political endorsements work on behalf of this organization. It's an incredible job. I'm honored to have it. Um, but what I think is, what I have come to love and you know acknowledge within me is one: I love cities. Um, you know, I'm actually very, very introverted. But there's something about cities that um, brings together 
and create space for communities that would not otherwise have that space. It, they're, they're beautiful. The, San Francisco is an absolutely gorgeous city. It's like I'm looking out at the Bay Bridge and looking out at Treasure Island. And even on this foggy day, it's just a gorgeous city. I live in Outer Sunset, blocks away from Ocean Beach. And I never thought I would live near the ocean. Um, so it's a beautiful city. And when it comes to transportation, what is very real about transportation is that it's so real within a city because we all have to get around. And that's the thing about transportation. It's so real for every single person. So I'm looking at this audience, dozen people here. You all had to get here and you all had a story of how you had to get here. And it's very real when you're fighting for that parking spot and you had to circle the block for 15 minutes and can't find a parking spot. It's very real in the bike lanes um, as someone who bikes regularly of almost getting hit or or almost actually, or having even actually gotten hit, or as a pedestrian, every time you cross the street and someone on their, you know, driving on their phone does something dumb, or the amount of stories that you hear of folks taking Muni and Bart, it, transportation is so everyday, so real, and so accessible as a policy issue. And for me, what has been really um, amazing is being able to translate people's pain points or experiences the, the beautiful things and the ugly things that we see, particularly on public transit, and be able to translate that into policies and be able to translate that into real impact in people's lives because of how real transportation is for everyone. I've never heard anyone talk about transportation so passionately. <laughs> <laughs> All right, audience, it's your turn to ask questions. Anybody have a question for Janice? Speak into the mic. It's being recorded. So Janice, um, hey. as a 25-year bike commuter in San Francisco, and I was riding bikes when there were no dedicated paths, I want to thank you for your work on the coalition because you made it safer for us. I want to thank you for biking yes. and to keep biking after all these years. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. That said, um, great work done on that end of it, and now that you're on BART, on the BART board, um, you had mentioned earlier world-class cities with world-class transportation. Can you name one or two of those? I'm curious um, what you kind of consider a model for us to, you know, follow. Um, I will say that I don't travel very much. I, uh, I've been pretty poor uh, most of my life, so being able to travel the world, it's very hard for me. Um, but... I know that other countries see transportation as a public good and they invest in it. It is not the last thing that you're like, okay, I guess we'll put some money there. Um, and you see that particularly in Asian countries. You see that in the high-speed rail that's you know crisscrossing Europe and the ease of transit and the stories I hear of people who are able to have the means to travel to other places and the stories that they bring back. Um, I think it's just uh, uh, a different position of how, what, how we view our public transit. Um, it's going to take a while, but I think we can get there. I think more important for me is to not only get to OK. I think if we can only hope to get to OK with our BART immunity system, it really um, creates a false ceiling of the kind of city we could be in terms of having truly affordable transportation, maybe even free, fully free public transit, um, or seeing stations being places that you're proud of. I mean, you look at other cities like LA's Union Station or Grand Central Station in New York City, and those are beautiful, beautiful 
um, landmarks within cities. Um, and I'm looking at Salesforce Transit Center. I'm like, why? <laughs> but, you know, we, we could, you know, we could dream big um, rather than dream for marginal. Anybody else? Uh, now that the state has given BART permission and incentives to build housing on parking lots, is that likely to happen anytime soon? Yeah, so you're referring to Assembly Bill 2923 that was sponsored by Assemblymember David Chu in San Francisco, signed by Governor Brown in September of last year. Um, what it does, and now I am starting to understand a little bit more, um, the short version is that it gives BART a lot more control over the land that is adjacent to their stations that they own. Currently, that's about 250 acres, mostly tied up in surface parking lots. So you think of like uh, Walnut Creek or you think about uh, Fremont and they have these massive, massive parking lots. That land is not in San Francisco, I will say. So um, as a BART director, I do have to work with my eight other colleagues who are representing, you know, other areas um, as this bill develops. In terms of the implementation, what it says is that by default, the minimum is that BART needs to hold, like legally hold itself to the guidelines set forward um, back in 2017 around transit-oriented development. Those guidelines set much higher rates of affordable housing. It sets much higher rates of uh, commercial use, as well as um, decreasing parking um, there are no parking minimums, so no parking is required for any development, it increases density, uh, does a lot of different things. So over the next few years, what BART will have to embark upon is to work closely with local jurisdictions and think about each station that they have and the local jurisdiction that surrounds it to come up with basically a station area plan to be able to meet those guidelines that jives with ideally what the local jurisdiction wants. Um, and BART has 48 stations across many different jurisdictions. So um, it's going to be careful planning of figuring out, okay, what stations have land that's already going to move forward in development? Lake Merritt is a good example. There's already a great project there, high rates of affordability. Fruitvale is another example of 100% affordable housing project there. Um, and those are, you know, in good shape. There's going to be some where... Um, there's going to have to be a lot more work with local jurisdiction to make sure that everyone's brought on board to meet those um, ambitious gui guidelines that are now going to be sort of law of the land for BART. Um, and then there's going to be other stations where right now, you know, the housing density or housing needs are not there yet. We began that conversation already at the BART board workshop last, uh, last week, Thursday and Friday. So those conversations are already happening. And what the BART board has instructed staff to do is to really come back um, with much more analysis and much more understanding of each of the station typologies, really, um, and what actually has to be done sometime this spring. So stay tuned um, if you're really into land use and housing. What do you see as the um, role for BART on equality issues? Can you be more specific? So economic equality generally and equality um, within the LGBT community um, and racial equality too. Absolutely. I think that um, BART has a really fascinating history. Um, one of the things 
um, I was, I'll give you a quick story. Um, I was campaigning on election night on the outer sunset. I was supporting, uh, Gordon Marr, who won as my District 4 supervisor, was out there campaigning with Jane Kim, had a hot minute to, we were just like, we had like dead time. It was like two hours before polls closed. Um, and we stopped by a really cute bookshop in the Outer Sunset, and she, we walk in, and it was so uh, fortuitous. There was a book called BART by Michael Healy, the longtime spokesperson at BART. just came out like a year or two years ago. Um, and Jane bought it for me, and I actually read it. And it taught me a lot of the history about BART. It's a little dry, so you've got to really want to read it to read it. But if you do, it's got wonderful like nuggets of history. Um, and one thing is that BART has been historically very, very um, progressive and strong when it comes to hiring policies um, in bringing on, you know, of being very inclusive in their hiring practices. Um, and I see this, you know, certainly as I'm working with BART staff, that's not quite the same with the BART board, but also, you know, voters vote for the BART board. So that's another problem or not problem, but like, that's one of the reasons why you might not see the same diversity in the BART board versus BART staff. Um, with that said, I mean, I think that there's a whole lot BART could do in terms of the kind of user experience it provides for its passengers. Um, something that I've heard a lot of, particularly in you know within the LGBTQ community, is nightlife. And the fact that BART doesn't run 24-7 is actually a damper on nightlife, particularly queer nightlife. You know, I've heard this from Castro, folks up in the Castro. Um, that's why, you know, folks were really supportive of Scott Wiener's, Senator Scott Wiener's bill for the 4am last call. Um, but when you have a 4am last call, but Bart stops running around midnight, you know? Um, so I, I think that there's a lot more that Bart can be doing to be more responsive and be building towards some of these long-term, you know, getting to extended hours and someday 24-7 service, um, which I think, you know, does a whole lot. And then you think about job opportunities. Um, having extended hours means a lot for folks who need to be at their jobs at, you know, 4 a.m., 5 a.m. at times that BART is only just opening. I have a question. Um, you mentioned high-speed rail before. Uh, what do you think about, this is not a BART question, but I mean, what, what do you think about the high-speed rail here I know. in California I, I, and, the, well, and also kind of the issues that it's created with the overruns and the delays and such like that, does that make voters less likely to support other big transportation things that might be? I mean, needed? yes. Um, I, I have a seat on, I think it's the San Francisco section of the high-speed rail working group or something. It's a bunch of like local stakeholders, but it's like a really obscure body that meets like quarterly or something. Um, I can't say I'm well-versed in high-speed rail here in California. Um, in terms of overruns and delays, uh, I made very strong comments last week at the BART board meeting um, that it is hard for me to think of a single government project, certainly SFMT project, which I'm, I'm much more familiar with SFMT projects, um, that isn't delayed. I cannot think of one. And I have poured over, particularly with bicycle and pedestrian projects at the SFMTA, hundreds. I have deep understanding of their planning. And I cannot think of a single project, even the quick, you know, short-term ones that is not either months, like one month delayed to years delayed. You look at Market Street and you're like, how, how does this Market Street still exist today? And that's because Better Market Street has been in planning for like over 10 years or so now. Um, so 
I, I pose this question at the BART board meeting, and it is truly why I called an existential question, which is, is it better for a city government to give less ambitious, more realistic timelines? Or is it better to push to be ambitious, knowing that you'll likely have, you know, because you make schedules based on the best information you have at that time, is it better to have those ambitious schedules, knowing that you're going to have to go back to your constituents, you're going to have to go back to your voters time and time again to say, I'm sorry, but there are delays. And I brought this up with BART specifically as it pertains to the fleet of the future, the new BART cars that were supposed to begin really rolling out a year ago, two years ago, and it's been fits and starts. And I will tell you in this room, to the best of our ability and the best knowledge and information we have now, that real fleet is really supposed to start rolling out this spring. But, you know, come summertime, we'll see. I might have to get back to you with new information, right? This is a really existential question. Um, Does it impact, you know, how voters feel? Does it impact potential future ballot measures? Absolutely. And I think that this is something that everyone is very sensitive to. I just don't think that there's a really great answer because you make decisions based on the information that you have at the time. And we do this in our lives. We do this with our relationships and we sure as hell do it at BART. (laughs) I love how you mentioned on Twitter that the BART, most BART cars are older than you are. (laughs) <laughs> yes, the average age is 35. Yeah. <laughs> um, last question for you, Janice. Uh, you know, first time running for political office. There are many of us out there who might be inspired um, just by your campaign. And, and, and not just you. I mean, you know, right this, this year or this last election, there was a wave throughout the entire country of first timers. Um, so for someone who is out there who wants to get politically involved, who's inspired by your campaign, I mean, what, what words of advice could you give to someone? I would say do it. I have my own personal experience and I have a, I have a lot of thoughts about running for office. I will say personally, I did not enjoy it. There are a lot of aspects of being an elected official I don't enjoy. I say now that I'm so many, so many people are going to be like, just don't say it. I don't really want to run for office, for their office. I, I really don't. Um, because of the toll that took on me and the kind of life that you have to live. Um, with all that said, I don't regret running. Um, and what it has, uh, I mean, I'm like a couple months in, how, how weary of all this can I really be? Um <laughs> But I would say, you know, and this is what this was my first speech that I gave on election night. I was at El Rio with a bunch of folks and, you know, folks were like, wow, first results came in. Janice, you're going to win. Gave a speech. And I was honestly, and I'll say again, if you're young, if you're queer, if you're a woman, um, if you care, run. You won't regret it. Um, don't overthink it. Just do it. And you will learn a lot about yourself along the way. You will learn about whether this is really for you. But what the issue is, is that folks like us, folks like me, we are told not to run. We are told to wait your time. We are told when you're ready, we'll call on you. But they don't call on you. So you've got to call on yourself. And for me, it's just telling everyone, Michelle, you should run for office. You should. Right. (laughs) And if you hear it enough times and if you see enough people who look like you, you might actually think that you could be that change. Because historically, for a Chinese community, for folks like me, we never saw ourselves represented. We never thought there was a space for us. So we never trusted government to be that change. But if you it could be you, 
you could be that. Uh, very quickly follow up to that there, because I, I, I mean, you had consensus with a lot of really important people in the city and some clubs, political progressive clubs who really got behind you. And so um, how did you I mean, did you go back to your in-law and said, I got to pull all the good, great stuff that people like about me and present that. And so everybody will like me or, you know, <laughs> you know, what I, mean? I like, know this is it, it's <laughs> such a it's such a. Uh, c- contentious city to 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 be in politics because everybody is. is a progressive. Um, but but you know it you guys is. the purity test. Goodness, I mean, certainly I just got uh, elected to the Harvey Mill Club board, and I saw that play out there. Um, I had support from. It was funny. I got support from Yimby Action, and I got support from Community Tenants Association. The two groups yelling at each other around SB eight two seven on City Hall steps. Um, I, I got support from really broad range. I would say uh, for me to always respect everyone um, who puts themselves in, like I've respected everyone who runs for office, anyone who serves in office, regardless of whether I agree with their policies or not. And so I think through that, I was able to get, you know, Assemblymember David Chu and Assemblymember Phil Ting's endorsement. I was able to get Supervisor Katie Tang's endorsement and Supervisor Jane Kim's endorsement. I think always being really real about where you sit on issues and also doing the work and understanding those issues deeply so that you're not making stuff up, but you're really speaking what you think those changes should be and what the vision that you have for that office, for me, for BART, for transportation, for San Francisco. Um, and then always be open, be accessible. I don't know. I feel like this is a bit like banal or a bit like, you know, fortune cookie advice here. But um, I never had perceived preconceived notions of folks that I would bring up. Like I, I really entered every conversation and every meeting with sort of this wide eyed, tell me about yourself, because I always come from a position of I don't know what the f- I'm doing most days. I certainly didn't know when I was a candidate. So to not go in meetings thinking I was going to put forward this thing or put forward a certain version of me or put forward a certain idea, but to know that these people have been doing this work for such a long time. And even folks who are younger than me have so many experiences and so much energy and like intensity um, that I might never have. And to know that there's something deep within everyone Um, and to approach every meeting, every endorsement meeting, um, and this whole world with that sort of curiosity and hope, I think is the only reason I can, you know, stand what I'm doing. Well, on that note, I'm really glad that I'm not the only one, at least, that doesn't know what the they're doing (laughs) with myself. Thank you so much, Janice, and congratulations again. And we're excited and can't wait to see all that work turn out into, you know, the vision Um, uh, be executed. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to our audience for being here. The Michelle Meow Show is here every Thursday at the Commonwealth Club. We have some exciting guests coming up. Uh, Former Supervisor Jane Kim will be here. We call it the exit interview. What is she up to next? Some people already want to know. Uh, She'll be here for Valentine's Day, and I'm sure in a bright red suit. Uh, We have Tina D'Elia, who's going to talk about the overlooked Latina. Uh, And I'm really excited for February 21st, Brianna Sinclair, who's one of the first, I think the first, um, uh, trans women to perform with the San Francisco Symphony. And Angela Remy, who's a performer, and we'll talk about workplace inclusion and uh, advocating for tr- for hiring transgender people. So a lot coming up and then really exciting stuff in March. You can check out the entire schedule at commonwealthclub.org. 
We'll see you next time.